Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Kim. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word? Let's pray together. In Isaiah, you say, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Lord, you have established your word as your very own presence and as your very own power, the way in which you transform our hearts that we would actually become like Jesus. You accomplish this through the power of your word. And so we come now to your word and we still our hearts and we ask that you would open us, open our ears, open our eyes, that we would see Jesus, that we would understand your gospel more deeply, that we would be changed as a people so that you would receive glory in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So kids, a quick question for us this morning. How was Christmas? Is it good? You know, it's kind of that, it's tough. This is, this is a tough week, right? It's kind of coming down after Christmas and um, and it was fun, what a fun season, you know, but now it's, it's over and we're, we're coming down and we're coming back uh, to normal life and just pondering a little bit the Christmas season, I want to ask a question. Did you ever find over the Christmas holiday and gatherings and, and parties and, and time together with family, did you ever find it hard to get along with one another? You ever find that? Maybe just a little bit. Um, you ever, did you notice any conflict over the Christmas season popping up here and there? This is part of what we talked about as we moved through the Advent season about how Christmas can be one of those times where we have those huge expectations of nostalgia and it just being perfect, just working out just right. But this is why I'm so, so very grateful for Clark Griswold because like, that's reality, at least for me. You know, you build up the expectations and the reality doesn't come anywhere close to it. And 
one of the realities of Christmas is that this time that we, we so value for being a time to, to be together with people, with family, with uh, all these amazing experiences, and yet it's so challenging. Uh, it can be a time of great conflict where you're together with all your family and, it, it, and it, it doesn't quite work out the way that you hoped that it would. Uh, Ashley and I were talking about this on, on Christmas morning. You know, we, we kind of do this thing where you open presents in different rounds. You know, it kind of stretches it out a little bit. And, and at one point, I just kind of had, had to call a timeout for the family. And I said, hey, I just, I just want to acknowledge here, just want to point this out. That after each round of presents that we open, your level of conflict and anger towards one another is just getting more and greater. Just want to point that out for us. Just want to acknowledge that. How can it be that the more stuff they're getting, the more conflict they're experiencing? I just, just found it ironic. Of course, <clears throat> I'm no different in my own heart. And... You know, going into the Christmas season, I, ha- I had really high expectations for myself. You know, all these times where I was going to be with family, with extended family, to see family members I don't often get to see. And the reality is, I just need to confess, I struggled. I struggled relationally. I found myself in, in times, whether it be with my own family or whether it be with extended family of those those different gatherings or parties or times together where going in, I was really hoping, man, I just, I really hope this is a time where I can love well, where I can enter in, where I can be patient, where we can, together as a family, really bond and connect and everything, and yet I found myself in the midst of it struggling. Conflict, I found myself kind of feeling antagonistic, to different members of the family, to being critical in my heart, uh, to wanting to pull back, to being just critical in my mind as I was with family. And sometimes as I'm experiencing that, especially if you have those high expectations, you just feel defeated. I don't know if you experienced any of that, but I certainly did. And I struggled, and it was hard, and it was difficult. Why is it so hard? in relationships with one another? Why is marriage so hard? Why is Christmas so hard? Why is community in the church so hard? Why is it so difficult to be one in community and relationship with one another? Well, the reality in my heart of what made it hard for me was not anything that anybody else was doing in any of our gatherings. The struggle that I was having was right here. It was my own selfishness. What, what created my difficulty I was finding in relationships? It was me. It was my selfishness. It was my pride. Selfishness and pride are really the same thing, two sides of the same coin. And the fact of the matter is that's what blocks community for each of us. That's what creates conflict. That's what makes relationships, whether it be in the church or family or with neighbors or whatever it might be, that's what makes it hard. Selfishness and pride. So in our passage today, and this is a, I chose this passage because it's an incredible picture of the incarnation. Just in, in this passage as Paul is describing the gospel here, and it's a poem actually in here that he's quoting. It, it's an amazing picture of the incarnation, but even beyond that, 
the gospel. But I wanted to look at this because I want us to see how the power of the gospel creates unity in our relationships. I want us to see how the gospel creates and energizes community among us. That's what we're seeing in our passage together. So as we jump in here, in chapter 2, as we began reading here, Paul is speaking to the church, and he's calling the church into community. Now, that's something that we talk a lot about as a church. It's one of our core values as a church, community. We even put it in the name of our church, Grace Community. Because we believe, and what we mean by that is we're talking about our relationships with each other. Because we believe that Scripture calls us to a depth of unity and relationship with one another that is utterly unique in the world. Now, in our culture, and we talk a lot about this, in Western culture, we're very individualistic in the way that we see the world, in the way that we see our lives. We primarily think about me and my individual life, like we are a collection of individuals. But as we come to the Scriptures, we see that the Scriptures talk an enormous amount about our relationships with each other. That we are called into a certain quality of relationship with each other. And that's what Paul is calling the church at Philippi to in this passage. He's calling them to unity. He starts off with saying, hey, if you experience oneness with Christ, if you experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, if, you, if you're experiencing all of these incredible blessings of being united to Jesus. In verse 2 he says, I want you to make my joy complete by bringing that down into your relationships with each other. Let your personal experience of relationship with Christ translate into your relationships with each other. Look again at what he says in verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. That's a pretty astounding calling, is it not? As he's speaking to the church, he says, listen, I want, I want you guys to be united with one another. I want you to be of one mind. I want you to be of one purpose. I want you to be of a common love, of, of, of a depth and quality of relationship with one another that is flowing from your relationship with Jesus. Now, that is an incredibly costly calling. What is it that blocks that? What is it that prevents that in our relationships with each other? And then on the other hand, what is it that creates that? Paul addresses both of those in verse 3. Look at what he says. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. So here, he names what it is that blocks our unity with one another. Whether you're talking about unity in the church, in any of your relationships, unity in your workplace, unity in your family, unity in your marriage, no matter where you're talking about, the enemy to unity with one another is selfish ambition and vain conceit. It's selfishness. It's pride. It's this sense of like me at the center. When I'm at the center of my world and how I'm viewing all things, whenever I'm living in that way, it blocks community. It's a barrier to community. That is, in fact, what prevents depth of relationship and community. 
is selfishness. It's our pride. And that is the default of our hearts. That's the default in all of our interactions. Think about it for a minute. When you find yourself in a group of people, when you come into a group of people, you find yourself with your family in some sort of a setting, how easy is it to just be thinking about yourself in that place? How is it whenever you're in a group of people, how easily you can be thinking, how am I being seen here? How am I being treated here? How are other people acknowledging me? How are other people offending me? How are other people uh, giving me my rights in this situation? How are they treating me in a way that I deserve to be treated? How easily, just in a group, that's just the default. That we're thinking of things through the lens of me. How am I being treated? How easily we can have a, a critical mindset. How easily offended we can be when we were other people. Now, where does that come from? Where does that, that quickness to be offended and that, that just kind of critical spirit that just notices the fault in others? Where, where does that come from? It comes from our pride. It comes from selfishness. It comes from us being at the center of our world. Just this past week, I was having a conversation with this, this person doesn't go to our church, but I was having a conversation with this person in the community, and they were telling me about how the church that they're at, that, that they're probably going to end up leaving their church because uh, his wife was being ignored by someone else's wife in the church. And, and it just kind of struck me, I'm like, is that a reason to leave? I mean, one, you don't even know that they're mad at you. Have you ever had this experience that you're, you're in a community of people and you just, you just feel like somebody's mad at you? you and you, just, you begin to interpret everything that they do as being against you. You ever had that experience? And normally what we do in that is that we want to go and we want to tell somebody about it. You, you know, this, this person, I don't know what they've done, but they're always ignoring me. They're not looking at me. I know that they're talking about me, all this stuff. And I'm just like, I said, how do you even know? How do you know that person is upset with you or ignoring you? You understand that sometimes we just perceive all of these things because we're so at the center of our world. And we just, we're just evaluating everyone around us as how they are treating or seeing me. I mean, maybe that person is having an incredibly hard week. Maybe they think you're mad at them. You don't know. But this person's willing to bail on the whole community because someone is not treating them right. Now, I don't just single them out to say, can you believe this person? Because really, I'm talking about us. We're the same way. If you think you're beyond that, let's sit down and have a conversation. <laughs> Let me introduce you to yourself. Because we are really that petty. All the way down at the bottom. We so, by default, evaluate everything with ourselves at the center. So what is the secret to community? What is it that creates this depth of loving relationship and unity in spirit 
and in purpose, having the same love, what Paul is calling us to in the church and in all of our relationships, what is the secret to that? Paul says it right here. Humility. It's humility. That's the secret to community. You want to build community? You want to have relationships in your life that are deep and flourishing? You want to have a strong marriage? It's really easy. How do you get it? Humility. Now, what is humility? That's one of those words that gets tossed around a lot, and I don't think we understand very clearly what humility is. But Paul defines it for us here. Second part of verse 3. In humility, what is humility? Consider others better than yourself. That's what humility is. To consider other people, their needs to be better than your own. It's like displacing yourself. That you're more focused on other people. You're more considerate of other people. You're more interested in other people than you are yourself. That's what humility is. Consider others better than yourself. I can't think of a more unnatural thing to call us to than that. That does not come naturally to my heart. I don't know about yours. Consider others better than yourself. C.S. Lewis has got a great description of this in his book, Mere Christianity. There is a, the chapter on pride in Mere Christianity, I think is one of the finest chapters in any book I've ever read. It is so deeply convicting. Because pride is one of those things that I don't think any of us think that we have. Because oftentimes we think of pride is someone who's puffed up and thinks that they're better than everybody else. But C.S. Lewis makes an, an incredible point about pride. He said, if you're to meet a truly humble person, you know, say you're out somewhere and you actually run into someone who's really deeply humble, you're not going to walk away from that encounter saying, wow, what a humble person that was. You're not going to be encountering some person who's talking about how bad they are or how low they are, or how, 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 how unworthy they are. You're actually going to be encountering someone, if they're truly a humble person, who doesn't even talk about themselves at all. In fact, says C.S. Lewis, you're going to walk away from that encounter being surprised at how much they were interested in you. How much they were asking you questions about you. How, how interested they were in who you were. That's what humility is. And he goes on to say this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's self-forgetfulness. Can you imagine how freeing that would be? To be self-forgetful. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. And that's what we often think about. Humility is, is beating yourself up. And oh I'm terrible. And I'm unworthy. And all this stuff. And the reality is, is that that can be just as prideful. You know, we think of someone who's just deeply depressed and down on themselves as, as like not being prideful. But what, what C.S. Lewis is pointing out is that that is just as prideful as the person who's puffed up and thinks that they're better than everybody else. Why? Because essentially pride is being centered on yourself. It's being preoccupied with yourself. So true humility is forgetting about yourself. It's considering other people as better than yourself. Self-forgetfulness. Imagine a church 
filled with people like that. Imagine being a part of a community where everyone in the community is always thinking about others. Thinking about what others need. Considering others better than themselves. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you imagine being in a family that was living that out? Can you imagine being in a marriage that was living that out? Can you imagine living among roommates where that was being practiced? Where everyone in the house is like, I'm not thinking about how, I, how am I being treated. I'm not thinking about my rights. I'm thinking about what do you need? How can I serve you? How can I know you? How can I consider your interests above my own? Be an amazing community to be a part of. And that's exactly what Paul is calling us to in the community. So here's the question. Where does that come from? Where do you get that? Where do you get that kind of humility, in, especially whenever we begin to see how foreign it is to our hearts, how unnatural it is to our hearts? How do we get that, that kind of humility? And we see where Paul goes. Where does Paul go in the gospel? As he's called us to that, where does he take us to find the power for that kind of community? He goes to the gospel. Look at where he goes in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he starts into what is a poem. This was an ancient poem. We don't really know where it came from, but Paul here is quoting it here. And it's, a, it's an amazing summary of the gospel. You see, for Paul, the gospel is not only how you're saved, it's how you are transformed. The gospel is not just that basic information that you need to know so that you're able to get into the Christian life, so that you're able to go to heaven whenever you die. For Paul, the gospel is not just that. It's not just the ABCs. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. It is how you change as you are continually rooting yourself and resting yourself and finding your identity in the gospel. That is the power for change. And that's why Paul, after he's called us to community, goes back to the gospel. Now look at this summary of the gospel here and how what he emphasizes in this summary of the gospel is the loss of Jesus. That is what he is losing, what he is giving up. Verse 6. And it begins with the incarnation. We just looked at this throughout Advent as we're talking about Christmas. We're looking at this aspect of the gospel in which Jesus becomes a man, enters into our world. And look at how it is described here, how Paul describes it here in verse 6. Talking about Jesus, who in being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So Jesus was fully God in every way, fully knowing all of the glory and the privilege of heaven. All glory was His, but yet He did not see all of his glory and all of his privilege, something to be held on to. Something that's so natural for us. When we have stuff or privilege or rights or any of these things, those are things that very naturally we want to hold on to. We want to grasp it. I'm not letting go of this. But yet Jesus did not see that as something to be held on to. Verse 7, but made himself... Nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Paul's description here of the incarnation of Jesus 
becoming a human being was making himself nothing. Some of our translations say emptying himself. What could be more foreign to what's natural in us? To empty yourself of all privilege and all right. And yet at the heart of the gospel, it's Jesus doing that. It's him seeing all of his privilege and his glory and emptying himself of that. Of laying it aside. Entering into our world, becoming a human being. I mean, it's hard to even fathom being the creator of all things and yet entering into your creation as a human being with all of its limitations, with all of its suffering, with all of its lowliness. That is the humiliation of Christ. Can you even fathom how humiliating it was for the creator to become a creature? This is what... uh, Uh, not Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but gosh, I'm blanking on his name. That guy, God. But he says this in talking, he's my favorite quote about the incarnation. In talking about the incarnation, he says, what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation God will descend in his wild pursuit of man. You see, as he looks at the incarnation, he says, what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation. That was the incarnation. But yet Paul doesn't stop there. He moves on not only to the incarnation, but to the crucifixion. Verse, verse, second part of verse 8. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. He laid aside his rights and his privilege. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. As if it wasn't enough to become a human being, as if incarnation wasn't radical enough, he made himself obedient to death. The creator of life made himself obedient to death. And then Paul adds that extra little phrase, even death on a shameful cross. It was not just that he would be willing to die, but that he would be willing to die in the manner of a shameful Roman cross. That God himself would be willing to be stripped naked and nailed to a cross and hung up shamefully for all to see in a slow, painful death. See, for Paul, as he looks at that, what he's stunned by, what he's moved to worship over, is the humiliation of Christ. Is his willingness to give up and lose everything. And then, in verse 9, he moves to his exaltation. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a statement of the exaltation of Jesus. You know, sometimes whenever we think about the incarnation and we think about the crucifixion, Jesus dying on a cross, we can kind of think, oh yeah, yeah, that's the kind of thing that Jesus does. That, that's, that's what Jesus does because that's a Jesus thing, you know. What makes The crucifixion so stunning is when you set it alongside his glory, his exaltation. That 
God has exalted him to the highest place. That his name is above all names and that at his name, one day, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. You see, that's what makes his humiliation so stunning. You see, the more, the more privilege we get in this life, the less likely we are to give up any of it. The greater we see someone to be, the more that we see lowliness to be beneath them. No, no, you shouldn't do that because you're, you're exalted. You're at a place of greatness. But you see, Jesus demonstrates his greatness by his humiliation. That nothing so highlights his glory as his willingness to give up everything at the cross. That is his glory. So what Paul does there is takes us to the gospel to see the riches of what Jesus has done. So here's the question. How does that change me in the place of my pride and selfishness? How am I transformed from someone who's in a group of people and always thinking about me? How does that transform me from being someone who's always asking, how am I being treated? How how am I being acknowledged? How am I being served? How, How are my rights being upheld? How am I being offended? How does this transform me from being a selfish person to being someone who fully embraces the humility of Christ, who sees others as better than myself. How does that happen? It happens as this. As the gospel gets personal for you. See, that's what does it. It's not just to believe that Jesus did this, but to realize He did that for me. That's what changes you. When it gets personal, when it becomes personal trust. When you realize that when Jesus did that, he wasn't just doing it generically so that people might be saved. He didn't just become a man, live in our place, and die on the cross so that that those can be saved who wish to choose it. That's not it. It was that he knew your name when he did this. That as he was laying aside all of his glory, as he was coming into the world, as he was going to the cross, he knew your name. He was doing this For you, knowing everything that is true about your selfishness, everything that is true about your pride and your pettiness and how easily offended you are, how quick you are to demand your rights, he knew all of that about you and yet he spread his arms and died in your place. When that hits home in your heart and gets real and gets personal, that's what begins to change you. That's what begins to break the power of the selfishness so deeply rooted in each of our hearts. And when you see, because of what he's done, I'm now accepted before the Father. That because of what he's done, my sins have been wiped away. That I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That I've been accepted by the Father. That the Father now looks upon me, the holy God looks upon me and sees the righteousness of his son because of what he's done in my place. So I'm so completely and totally accepted in Christ. And my identity is now rooted in him. That, that I'm, I'm in union with Christ. And, and all that is true of him is now true of me and that is my identity. When you get that, you don't have to try to build your identity. 
You don't have to demand your rights. You don't have to try to build up yourself and make sure everybody recognizes you and knows how great you are. You don't have to do it when your identity is rooted in Christ. You see, when the gospel begins to personally hit home in your heart, it frees you from selfishness. It frees you from pride. It frees you from everything being about you. It gives you an inner security where your ego is not so fragile, where you're always trying to steal affection and reputation and all of those other things. It frees you to say, you know what? I I don't even matter. That's a part of where you go. That's that's where John the Baptist goes. He goes, he must become greater. I must become less. Because I don't need to promote myself because my identity is rooted in Christ. You see, only the gospel frees us for self-forgetfulness. So imagine a church that was like that. Imagine a church where we're so deeply rooted in the riches and the beauty of the gospel that we're always forgetting about ourselves. That we're considering one another better than ourselves. What what would be the result? I tell you, the renewal of a city, the transformation of a city. What would happen in our marriages? What would happen in our marriages if we were forgetting about ourselves and considering others better than ourselves? So let's stop there and just talk about it for just a minute. How does that strike you? How does that challenge you? How does that appeal to you or draw you in? What's happening in you as you consider both the call to community and the power of the gospel to take us there? Let's hear from each other. That's a great question. That is the question, right? We need to all be asking that question. Okay, how does that, how does that hit home and actually become operative in my heart? And I think that the starting place to realize is that if you're in union with Christ, that's already true. It's already true that that's my identity. So the problem is, is that I'm not believing that's my identity. I'm not living out of that as my identity. And so what has to happen is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is the process by which the gospel begins to have its way and effect in our heart through repentance and faith. And repentance is turning from the ways in which I'm trying to root my identity in all these other things. So that's where you have to start. You have to start with recognizing and coming to face, face-to-face with all the other things that you put your identity in. And there's so many things. I mean, you mentioned a few, reputation, success in work, relationships, how we look, our figure, our style, our toys, our hobby. I mean, it's literally endless. It's endless, the kind of things that we're tempted to put our identity in. And what we, the first thing that you've got to do is you've got to recognize that, see it, and turn from it. And say, that, that cannot give me identity. That is not my identity if I'm rooted in Christ. And then you turn in faith to our new identity in Christ and say, this is who I am. This is what makes me matter. This is what's most true about me. And that's the act of faith, of believing the gospel. So it's this constant process of repenting and believing the gospel. And we so naturally think 
that repentance and faith is something that we do once in our life, or that we do occasionally, or we do whenever we really blow it in our life. But the reality is, is that repentance and faith is how we change. It's how this becomes real and operative in our hearts. Does that make sense? Continuous daily process. Repenting of all the things that I seek to build my identity in. And turning in faith to Christ and saying, you are my identity. I'm rooted in you. I'm righteous in you. John? Yeah, right, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you can't rah-rah yourself into this. I did that Christmas. I'd rah-rah myself. I'm going in, I'm going to be with family and all of their irritations and everything. I'm going to love, and I'm going to be humble, and I'm not going to be offended you know, five minutes in, I'm like, I can't believe they said that. You know, it's like, I can't believe they don't appreciate my humility. Right? Don't they recognize how humble I am? Gosh. So that, that demonstrates the fact that I can't do this. You know, transformation doesn't happen by getting stronger. And I think we think about that all the time. Growing as a Christian comes my, me getting more committed. I'm going to get serious in this. No, it, becomes, it comes by being more surrendered, more broken, more helpless, more God's got to do it. God's got to work a miracle in me. And the more that you see it's all, that, it's all by miracle, it's all by grace, the more that you come to this place of being like, it is not about me. Yeah. Yeah. I think when you talk about, you know, our sin of pride and... and thinking about ourself, it just demonstrates this, I can't change myself. Because we could say, all right, today, in fact, you should do this, your homework assignment today. Go out today and don't think about yourself today, okay? And then report back tomorrow. How does that go? And you'll see very quickly, oh, I am shot through with pride. This is not a thing I can, like, willpower out because it's deeper than my will. And that's when we begin to see, I need grace. I need God's supernatural work in me moment by moment. That's the only hope I have of change. And that's when it gets free. Carrie? Yeah. Right, yeah. That's right, yeah. It's not a very humble step. I'm going to focus on not thinking about myself, which is going to force me to think about myself. Rex? Yes, right, right, yes, which I think is a great description of humility. You know, Rex is saying that, that in humility you shouldn't, if, humility should always result in moving you towards other people. Is that a way to put it? And I think, yes, that's the only thing that humility is, because I think we often think, again, we're highly individualistic, so we think that we can be humble alone because we think of it as an inward reality. Well, Paul says being humble means I'm thinking about other people. It's outside of me. So you can't be humble privately. 
Think about that. You cannot be humble privately. It, it always means I'm moving towards other people. How, how does this apply in marriage? I mean, let's get in the nitty-gritty, right? John says, doesn't apply at all. No connection whatsoever. I mean, really think about what would happen in your marriage. And here's kind of our tendency in our marriage. Wow, what would happen if my spouse started not thinking about herself, you know? Can't work that way. Yeah. We have an example here. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to give up your rights, which is really what we're talking about. And it's especially hard as an American to give up your rights. Because everything in our culture teaches us to demand your rights. I'm not talking about somebody taking away your rights from the outside. I'm talking about you choosing to give up your rights. And that is what the gospel is. Jesus had rights, and he gave them all up for us. So what should that mean? Probably following Jesus means constantly giving up your rights. I wonder if in America, people look at the church and say, you know, the one thing that stands out about those people is that they're always giving up their rights. That would be, that would stand out in our culture. It would stand out if we were people constantly laying down our rights for the sake of others. Roxanne? Yeah, right. He, he was not, I, I would say there that, that you're right. He, and, and I think this is an important part about laying down rights. Laying down rights does not just mean, you know, um, becoming silent. Or, or, or not standing up for things. That does not what giving up your rights is. I would say in that situation, which I think is a great example, he was standing up the rights for God and God's honor and not his own. I think also as we think about justice, which Jesus taught a lot about, justice is standing up for the rights of those who can't stand up for their own rights. You know, So you're making a good point is that Giving up your rights is not just saying, okay, I, I'm cool with whatever. That's not it. it it's, it's giving up my rights. My, I'm not demanding how I'm treated, but I will fight for the rights of others. And I think that's deeply biblical there. Thank you for pointing that out. Well, let me invite our musicians up and we'll close in, in worship. And uh, let's, let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, you, you know how deeply hard it is for us to not be consumed with ourselves. Um, and yet we belong to a God who made yourself nothing. I, I just pray that you would give us the space today and this week to just ponder that. That for me... You gave up all of your rights, your very own life, that I might know life. And I, I pray that that would so penetrate our hearts that it would start to affect the way that we treat each other, affect the way that we treat our neighbor, affect the way that we treat our spouse, affect the way that we do community here in our church. 
so that you would be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.